connection really is about talking and hearing. It's, it's, you don't have to be in the same room. Doesn't mean I'm not looking forward to it, but you don't have to be in the same room. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Hello, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, who will introduce herself. Um, Amy, please go ahead. Thank you, Maurice. I'm Amy Comstock-Rick, and I am currently the CEO of the Food and Drug Law Institute, which is a 501c3 educational organization. My background and how I landed here is I am a lawyer by training, went to University of Michigan Law School, started my career in a law firm uh, and really hated it, ran away screaming after two years. It just wasn't for me. It was very mm-hmm. clear. I could have had a very nice life and felt very poorly about myself for most of it and wasn't going to do that. Became an attorney in the government for many years, uh, worked in the area of government ethics. Uh, I had the opportunity to work in the White House in that capacity, as well as oversee the main government ethics organization. And then decided it just was time to leave the government. I've been there 15 years. And very coincidentally, the way life just works out sometimes, a man who had been a a general counsel at at the Department of Education when I was there had since been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And we were friends and good colleagues. And I called him to say, I want to leave. What, you know, can we have lunch? I don't know what to do next. Hmm. And he, at that time, was the chairman of the board of a Parkinson's disease advocacy organization. And when he heard I was ready to leave the government, um, within a week, I had been offered the CEO job of that organization. They didn't get rid of anyone. They were looking anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And and that changed my professional, actually, in many ways, personal perspective, Mm. too. I fell in love with healthcare policy. Uh, and working with people with Parkinson's and their families as advocates. But I also fell in love with the intersection of science and policy. Mm. And I really grew to enjoy me as a someone who barely passed high school biology, learning how to, I had to understand the neurology of Parkinson's disease at any level in order to work on policy. And I found that I really enjoyed getting other people excited about the science and then seeing how that turns into things like the Affordable Care Act and, and other pieces of legislation that, that ultimately begin with science, human need, unmet medical need. I did the Parkinson's work for 11 years and then decided it was time for a change there, um, partially because after 11 years, it could be time for a change, but also it's, it's draining to do advocacy. And I was mm. going through a lot of funerals as part of my job. And that, you know, just eventually I just said, I'm losing 
I'm losing my pep and they deserve someone who has energy. And the Food and Drug Law Institute position was open and I, it looked really exciting. Brought me back to my lawyer roots. We educate whole communities on any of the subject areas over which the Food and Drug Administration has jurisdiction, which a lot of people know what the FDA does now, um, but tobacco, medical products, food, and we do educational programs for all sectors of people and organizations who care about FDA, which is about 25% of the U.S. economy, believe it or not. So, so that's me in a nutshell. Wow. A, lo a lot of interesting uh, things you were sharing there. I have three quick questions. You know, if I ask you to share something that you learned during your time at White House, what would that be? Um, my children were young at the time, and I tried to instill in my children, if you want to work here or any other place that seems far, like who works there? Who are these people? It can be you. Um, it was just human beings. Even I still smile many, you know, 20 years later when I read um, in the newspaper or see on the news some theory of some brilliant conspiracy, either side hatched out of the White House. I'm like, yeah, it's really just people working there. I'm not sure they have that much time to hatch that kind of a conspiracy. So I think that's what I learned is it's human beings at all levels, clearly smart, trying to do the best they can with the, with what, with the tools they have. Second question is about your time at the Parkinson Action Network. Um, how did your background of being a lawyer, you know, your legal uh, knowledge, how did that help you in that job? That's, that's an excellent question. It wasn't necessary, but it absolutely helped because in dealing with policy, you often are dealing with legislation or with government agencies who are which get used, like all of us, used to doing things a certain way, and that applies to the National Institutes of Health or the Food and Drug Administration. And being, quite frankly, being a lawyer, it didn't intimidate me to say, well, they said that's how it has to be done? Let me look up the law. Are we sure it has to be done that way? <laughs> and, and it's anyone can do this. I think it, most it gave me the confidence that I can do this. And I hate to say it, but for your listeners who are in DC, they will understand having a JD for policy work in DC just helps your credibility a little bit. You know, you, you work for the Food and Drug uh, Law Institute. What are you most proud of in terms of, you know, that you and your team and I'm, I'm, I've listened to you, you work closely with your team. So you and your team um, have accomplished, you know, uh, since the time that you, you joined uh, the Institute. I joined eight years ago. And just a little bit about it. Um, as I already said, we're an educational organization. So we do conferences and programs and courses and publications. But in its long history, while the FDLI, the Food and Drug Law Institute, is supposed to encompass all members 
all aspects of an issue, whether it's in the tobacco area, public health, or for the manufacturers of tobacco or e-cigarettes, it had moved more and more into um, a structure where we offer educational programs for money and the people who can afford that are the for-profit companies and maybe the government. And, and we're really an information exchange organization. And that's really not enough for me. Um, I, FTLI has evolved uh, with the team and my work into an organization that on a particular issue represents the whole community and all different aspects of a community. And the best example right now really is the tobacco and e-cigarette issue where there's a great deal of mistrust, less some left over from the tobacco issues of the 60s, you know, well, 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and the great tobacco settlement. Um, some from e-cigarettes, there's racial inequities and divides and how to handle the menthol issue, how to handle vaping in school. And we've really worked hard to encompass all aspects so that public health, government, academics, manufacturers of e-cigarettes and tobacco can come to our programs and have very intelligent conversation at a very high level about some tough issues and people walk away not necessarily agreeing with each other and definitely not embracing each other, but believing that the information exchange was credible, valid, and useful. And, and to encompass the whole community, I think helps issues move along. It doesn't necessarily solve them, but you can't do anything in that subject area without public health and the government and the manufacturers in the room. That's, so that's just one example. I'm very proud that we've brought the nonprofit and patient organizations into our organization more since I've been CEO. I think that's really important because those are voices that can't be left out, particularly of medical products conversations. So embracing the whole community, even before COVID, when community became um, a very popular word. Hey, thank, thanks. Thank you. Okay, well, I would like to talk with you about the last two years or so where, you know, our organizations, well, all of us were affected are, and are still affected by the pandemic. Um, if I ask you, you know, how did that change the way you uh, do business? You know, you run your organization. How would you respond to that? It's it's funny. I um, I've said to a few people in the last X number of endless months and years, um, I wouldn't have missed the last two years for anything. And believe me, I could have lived a full life without a pandemic. That's not the part that I mean. But we're a small shop with a very uh, dedicated team of about 20 people. And I have never felt such a loyal, strong team who want to support each other as they as I've felt in the last two years. I'll even choke up a little bit saying this because they we were a 95% in-person conferences, courses, organization. Our organization's been around since 1949. And in many ways, I, other than email, I think we were still functioning kind of like they did in 1949. And within 
days and weeks, we all just, as with everyone else, but knew we had to change. I can see where we need to be. I have no idea how we're going to get there. But this group of 20 people kind of banded together and said, yeah, but we're going to do it. And it's been such an incredible experience for me to watch and be part of. Also, as mm -hmm. someone on the um, older side of, of her career, I didn't mind remote working, but I was a little old fashioned. Every I went into the office every day. You know, I liked it when people were in the office. I have completely changed my mind about that. Mm. Um, people need to balance their lives. It can be done remotely. Obviously, different issues. There's pros and cons to everything. But it has completely opened my eyes to what accountability means what flexibility means and what people can do when you have the right team of people who want to do a good job. Hey, th thanks. I'm, I'm asking this question because um, if I look at my organizations, there are, uh, you know, I have colleagues that are like you. And, and, you know, uh, are actually more thriving, uh, have more connection with each other. I, that's what I see. And others are not and are asking the question, you know, I miss being connected. So, um, yeah, what would be your ad advice to those who are struggling, you know, during these times of, of remote work? Well, one is just really simple. But from day one, we... I don't know if we mandated it, but the culture was video on all the time. And some of the connection is clearly we all would like to be together more. But on a Monday morning to have someone say to me, hey, you got your haircut this weekend. It's connection to say, did you switch out your picture back there? Um, those all matter. We also continued doing parties, not you know a lot, but we have a couple people who were pretty clever about how to, you know, manipulate technology. And we did, we've two years in a row, we've done a, a gift exchange at holiday time where we actually are moving wrapped boxes around the screen. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> silly, but we're laughing yeah, hysterically. Yeah. Um, and putting, we did put a lot of energy into making at the beginning making sure the people who lived alone, the people who were particularly scared, we made sure everybody had a certain number of meetings with others every week. And we were very upfront, very honest. We're doing this because we're worried about you. We're worried about everybody collectively. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that's why connection, connection really is about talking and hearing. It's, it's, you don't have to be in the same room. Doesn't mean I'm not looking forward to it, but you don't have to be in the same room. COVID's also been the great equalizer. I am old fashioned enough that when I went into the old conference room, I sat at the head of the table because I'm a CEO, right? So I sat at the head of the table. Um, we're all completely equal on Zoom. There's no head of the table. No one's rectangle is bigger than anyone else's. And when we went around every Monday morning to say what we what we did this weekend, you know, mine, especially at the beginning, was I finished my jigsaw puzzle. I'm really excited. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was a this yeah. has been an equalizing experience mm -hmm. for all of us.
right. Yeah, well, that, yeah, I, I had not thought about it in terms of you all have the same box now on the screen. That's, that's uh, yeah, you, you're so right. Um, very, very interesting. So I, I hope that, that uh, you know, those listeners that are struggling at the moment um, find this helpful. Because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I, I yeah, I, my, the people that I'm, uh, talking with in a in a week that really has increased, and I I feel that I in many ways have more connection than uh, before. So, you know, when you fly around, how many people can you meet on a on a day? And here it's a click away. So, um, and more people are saying yes also to to talks, and and that might change maybe uh, again. Yeah, maybe that's I, I would like to to ask you. So, do you think we, this will continue? So you know, let's let's hope that this pandemic will be over so are we going back to before or see how we can go back because you can't unring this bell of what we've seen possible be possible what i hope we do is not just assume that going back to exactly where we were in 2019 is the best thing to do there have been silver linings in all of this and I think we should learn from them in terms of making life easier for parents of young children or people with disabilities for them to remain in the workplace. Um, so I, what I bristle at is, is the idea of, of thinking it's best to go back to 2019. But will we, thought, will we all thoughtfully do it? I don't, I don't know yet. My listeners uh, know this because I, you know, I talk with people who are living and working in under, you know, wide range of, of circumstances. You know, my my colleagues overseas, uh, you know, access to to internet is it's much more difficult. So so they they did not start working remotely. They had to go on. So I, I you know, I just have I'd like to remind uh, my listeners that you know I, I think we are all aware that you have different circumstances, different contexts. Um, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, hey, Amy, well, you know that this podcast is a spin-off of my 100-mile uh, walk, uh, where I try to you know, raise awareness and money for poverty, hunger, and, and injustice. Um, you know, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles, so 15 to 20 miles per day in a week, what is the cause that you would walk 100 miles for? I think... Before 2020, I would have picked um, any of the disease, the diseases or disorders that have either afflicted my family or loved ones. Um, and but since I think racial inequities and injustice. Um, but I have to say the enthusiasm that I would have, I could never do it alone. I know myself well enough to know that mm. I would need part of it that I would need to find it within myself to walk a hundred miles in a week would be the bonding that I would have doing it with other people, sharing mm. that significant experience. 
as well as knowing, I tend to do a lot of things fast and I have done a hundred miles, but on a bicycle. And I have, um, I have over the years tried to do athletic things, slowing down now. Um, but I think for walking the slowing down experience and the listening to my own thoughts experience and seeing what I see at that speed would um, be significant for me. And, and I would want to share that with other people. So I know I'm, I'm kind of balancing the being alone and slowing down, but still being with other people. If I did it, that's how I would see myself doing it. And, and it's, it's, it's funny that you, you mentioned that, you know, being alone and slowing down. Um, well, you know, I sometimes I am accompanied by, by people who walk with me. For, seldom for the whole, <laughs> for the whole 50 <laughs> to 20 miles because they say, okay, 10 is enough or five, which is, which is perfectly fine. Um, because it's also a matter of you need to find a person that walks with the same pace as you do, mm -hmm. because otherwise you get more tired or, or yeah, mm -hmm. both, both ways it, you get more tired, uh, too slow or too, too fast, which is maybe also an interesting metaphor for, for life in, in general. You find people that you, you know, uh, click with. But um, when we uh, walk, we often talk about, you know, what is the purpose of life and then very quickly you know there are talks about uh, religion spirituality um so my question to you is are, are two two questions one is what drives you in life and then the second question is because i'm really interested in that what do you see among the youth in your community you know where you live um with regard to religion and spirituality because there seems to be a shift happening at least some of my guests see that um, so two questions, what drives you? And then the question about what do you see around youth in, in your community? What drives me is the people I live, work with, and love. I, I do see myself as a part of communities. I'm not someone who, I'm not an island. I when, when my children were young, it was my, my children. It's always been my family. Uh, humor still, my children are fully grown, but you know the funny texts that they'll send me sometimes. This, it, mm -hmm. It's why I enjoy being alive, is those relationships. Um, larger community in the morning, on a Tuesday morning when the alarm goes off and I'm supposed to go running with my running buddy who does run at the same pace as I do. And that's why we've run for 20 years. Um, is because I look forward to working with the team that I have at, at FDLI. So I'd say human relationships. And then, of course, the extension of that is what they can accomplish and what they can do. But I feel I am energized by being part of connections with other people. In terms of youth and spirituality, I have to say that um, I'm not personally a religious person. And I, I, if you'll allow me, I'll take a moment to explain that. But I see an incredible shift in the younger population right now of needing to, I don't want to diminish their, their thinking by saying do good, but be part of a world that's improving. 
mm. and being a part of that and whether it's small problems or big problems and wanting to uh, make a difference and feeling empowered that they can. And my generation might have, now admittedly, I went to a conservative law school in you know, the United States, but uh, might have thought, well, you can make a difference by climbing the ladder. And then when you, I was advised as a young person, I'm not kidding, it was from a college professor, get as much power as you can, and then you can use it for good. And I, I understand that there's still probably some logic to it, but I see in young people, well, wait, I have power now. I can vote, I purchase, I can post on social media. They, they feel very empowered now with what they already have fresh out of college. And I think that's great. It gives me a lot of optimism. Uh, it really does. In terms of spirituality, I have never been a churchgoer or, a, or any particular house of worship, not just church. Um, my parents were both raised in pretty religious families. And I think they both felt that religion had been the cause of so much human suffering and misery and poverty that they, they eschewed it, if you'll allow me that word. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because uh, if, if you wanna hear this story, there have been two, th two things in my life that have always been significant there. One is that I studied religious history as my major in college. Yeah, well, and yeah. in part because I, there are so many times in, his, in world history where people have sacrificed their lives, their families, their communities for the sake of, some, of something they believed in so deeply. And I don't have that. And I've always wondered, what was that? And by studying it, I ended up focusing on the Puritan community, which I understand has caused its own significant pain in the world, no question about that. But I grew up in Boston, so that's what I was drawn to. And the idea that you would at that time get in a rickety boat with your entire family and cross the ocean for the sake of what you believe to be a pure religion, I no longer believe what they had was a pure religion, but um, for that, you would risk that for something you believe in is just inconceivable to me. And I wanted to learn to understand it. I never quite did. I just learned more about it. And then the other was my former mother-in-law was a very religious Catholic woman, beautiful, lovely, warm woman. And she, without question, believed that God was supporting her always in the difficult times of her life and the joyous times of her life. And it kept her so strong and calm. And, and I just thought it was on a good day. I thought it was beautiful. On a bad day, I was jealous. <laughs> I mean, it was, and so, so when I think about spirituality, I may have a little of that, but I don't, I don't know that I have the religious gene. You know, observing how the younger generation is is uh, looking or or um, uh, experiencing religion and or spirituality, and it's not necessarily the same. I, I think, um, you know, yeah, I hear you saying, you know, they're trying to do good, but how do they give then? Yeah, how do you do? You see that they try to give meaning in a different way, or what I see through my own colleagues and, and my own children and their friends is people not participating in formal religion that much. 
Um, but I think the more it turns towards community, the more they are likely to participate. Now, I live in a particular you know, segment of the, the Northeast of the United States. And so there's no there's no society, as far as I know, societal consequences, family consequences for kind of pulling back from formal religion. That's not true in all families and in all parts of the world. But I, I really do, my guess for US younger people is if religion can, it becomes a part of their lives, it's more to be part of a community than for mm. personal beliefs um, in some of the more traditional Hmm. Okay. And I don't know why that happened. I actually don't. I really don't. So. No, and I also appreciate your 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 comment in terms of, you know, although religion did not play a role for yourself, that you studied it to understand, you know, what other people go through. I I think that's that's kind of an important because a lot of our society is still based on on uh, you know religion directly mm -hmm. indirectly. So to understand the world you live in that's a that's a that's a piece mm -hmm. so i'm not advocating for them to start it you know to follow a religion but but to understand uh the you know the community that you're part of i i think that's yeah that that will help um and then especially now we are looking at a lot of polarization but if you understand mm -hmm. where people come from so religion is part of that culture context etc um politics um, yeah, read a little bit more. Read one book more than than your neighbor, and and <laughs> right. and and a lot can happen. So right. so, uh, um, Amy, you know, yeah, you you said the, you know the younger generation is trying to contribute to make this world better. So that also kind of implies that you know there are things that we worry about that are happening in the world uh, at the moment. What is if I ask you to pick one? Um, yeah, what would that worry be at the moment? One, I'm real. I'm torn between two very. Okay, two. Very, <laughs> okay, I guess two. Okay, one is, and I'm by no means the only person to say this: the divisiveness of our society right now, and the the inclination, not just to disagree with people. That's fine. That's absolutely fine but to instantly call them a liar, believe that they're lying, um, not see that quite frankly, most of us really are trying to do the best we can with the resources we have and the time that we have. And most people inherently are, are good. Um, maybe we're not all good all the time, but most people really are. And I think we've lost that and, and, and actually choo are choosing to fight with each other. And it doesn't mean we don't disagree and have big disagreements, but I, I think I'm pretty soon I'm going to be pretty worried that we can't climb out of the hole that we've dug. And I mean politics, but I not, but I don't just mean, you know, DC, Mitch mm -hmm. McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. And you know, that's not what I mean. I mean just Americans who um are Interestingly, my guess is not mean to their neighbors, but that's because they know who they are, but they're mean to anyone who may have views similar to their neighbors. I, I think we've all we've all gotten to a place where we're making judgments about people we never met. And um, 
and it's playing out into how we make decisions for the future of this country, and that really scares me. The other is the mistrust of science, because one of mm. the great benefits that we've had as a wealthy country is the ability to invest in science, and my greatest care is medical science mm -hmm. and the life sciences. And if we can't, if we think that scientists are either being used for political purpose or very COVID specific, don't understand that science is an ever evolving field. And so what we understood six months ago, we now know more. So some of what we thought six months ago is wrong. We now know that, but that's actually progress. It's not it's not moving backwards. And, and you know, you see, see I see people, um, the woman who cut my hair a week ago, saying, well, they were all wrong. They were just wrong. They were wrong six months ago. So how should I know they're right now? Well, maybe they're not. But they are telling you what they know to be right at the moment. And we expect the American public and the world to be smart enough to know that it's a constantly evolving process. And I don't see people accepting that or even wanting to accept that. And that really scares me. Where do you still see hope? <laughs> uh, youth, just mm -hmm. wonderful, warm, intelligent people who I think see what I'm talking about and don't want that for their children. I see hope when I deal with my own adult children and their friends and my colleagues at work. Um, okay, I'm going to jump somewhere else and that is to music because music is, is very important to me. I have always questions about music as well. So the question that I have for you, if I ask you to name a piece of music or a song, that best embodies who you are, who Amy is, which song or piece of music would that be? So I'm afraid you're going to think that I um, am a depressed person, which you, I think you know me well enough, Maurice, to know I'm really not. I would have to say Brahms Requiem. Hmm. Um, I actually like the plural of Requiem would be Requia, I guess, um, because of the complexity of the music. But what you may not know is my mother was a professional musician. She was a violist. And mm. so music's been a part of my life always. I personally am not talented in any way, but it's been a part of my home always. And my daughter is a music teacher, high school music mm. teacher, and my son is in graduate school for music therapy. And so it clearly, you know, kind of leapt over me and went into them. And Brahms Requiem is also a piece that um, my closest friend in college was part of the choir in college and part of the chorus. And they had just a memorable performance for me in the beautiful church of my college. So it just kind of encompasses my whole life. It's a very, I don't know if you've ever listened to it, but it's an extremely dramatic, moving piece of, and beautiful piece of music. So that would be my pick, even if it's um, not always uplifting. 
No, and, and, and actually it's, it's interesting and, and just to remind uh, the listeners and, and to tell you that, I, you know, uh, we made a, a song list for Walk Talk Listen, hashtag Walk Talk Listen, and there you can listen to the songs that have been picked by my guests. And, and Brahms is actually picked by um, not this particular piece, if I recall it properly, but Brahms is, is a composer by a number of, of, uh, of my guests. So, so that's, that's uh, interesting by itself. And, and uh, yeah, he, he was an incredible composer. Yeah, you, you know, you mentioned this already a couple of times, you know, racial uh, justice. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my question is, because my organization celebrated 75 years of existence last year, and, and we are using this time also to reflect on our actions on the now and the future, and, and racial justice is especially important. So, you know, how did we do? So, um, so for the question that I would like to ask you is for the NGO sector as a whole, um, how did that sector do, according to you, with regard to racial justice? And I'm fully aware that you know it's you know it's difficult to to uh, to put the whole NGO sector together because there are so many different NGOs. Still, I'm I'm asking you to kind of reflect and, and give a grade on on how NGOs did, according to you, around racial justice. Probably not as well as I would like them to say that they're doing. At least in my, I agree with you, you can't generalize um, NGOs that are focused on racial or health equity issues, health in, in the areas that I know something about. Clearly, I expect them to be doing better. Um, but I think one reason, going back to my Parkinson's years, is that NGOs that already have a key mission to meet, to try to meet or improve some unmet need in our society, whether it's, um, you know, in in that case, uh, a medical need. If you if we would bring another issue into the room, but we're also an employer, we need to do something about this, we need to contribute here. I think there's a tendency to say, wait, stay in our lane, stay in our lane. We're already trying to improve the world and our slice of it. And that's a wonderful attitude to have, except when it goes too far. And I think it maybe unintentionally was a crutch or an excuse, and I would blame myself for this too, of, well, I already, I already bit off more than I can chew. There are NGOs that focus on those issues. And I, and, complete, and I think we're all evolving now to, wait a minute, that's not good enough. I'm a neighbor. I'm a family member. I'm an employer. I'm a consumer. I need to take responsibility for everything that's happened in all of those areas of my life, in addition to being an employee. And I think that's a a very positive step, but I think NGOs, um, yeah, I think they haven't actually taken it on as, uh, they may not always, and again, generalizing, boy, am I generalizing, but they may not always see that they are play a role in society in all those ways too, a neighbor, a tenant, an employer, and that they have responsibilities there too. But I think that's changing, which is good.
I can tell you that FDLI, as a membership organization, in 2020, um, summer of 2020, uh, with all the horrific killings of that year and many years before, but the attention um, drawn to them in 2020, we had always um, justified our fairly minimal diversity within our organization that while we reflect the profession, the food and drug law, whether it's lawyers, regulatory, NGOs, that we, our organization was about as diverse as the community we work with. So, so it can't be us, right? It's not our fault. We said, stop, that's, it's not good enough anymore and have been working very hard in the last two years to increase the pipeline of diverse young professionals coming into our field. So we've started working um, and we have a long way to go with HBCU law schools to try and attract more people to our profession, majority minority schools. Um, and we're still building our endeavors. This good, good programs don't get built overnight, but, um, but I think all of us acknowledging the significant roles we do play and making sure we at least do one or two things will make a difference. Right, that's, that's, that's very good to hear. Um, yes, just, just to remind myself also, I will make sure that in the, in the podcast notes, we will mention social media tools um, of, of the organization you work for, as well as the website, so people can read right. more. Uh, about that um you know time flies so i'm i'm at my last question and um yeah any last message question um a comment idea that you have for uh, the listeners because we're the in 2022 where we are with covid and a uh and our society as i said being divisive and mistrustful of each other um, I'd go back to something you already said, Maurice, which is read one more book, doesn't have to be a book than your neighbor. Um, if you read something that shocks you, maybe it isn't true. <laughs> uh, read up on it more. Finish the article that you started. The headline is often deceiving. And if you read it, you actually say, oh, oh, I understand what happened here. That makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, dig deeper. Um, we're all getting a little too um, two-second readers, five-second readers, that we think we understand the complexity of something horrible that happened without reading a lot about it. And um, I think that's causing part of the problem. So educate yourself. Don't believe everything you read. Have an open heart, too. Oh, that, that's, that's a great... Uh, a quote and 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 you know something to to really live uh, by thank you so much for uh, sharing your you know experience and, and knowledge ideas yeah all the all the best with what you do and uh, yeah it's 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 so great uh, knowing you so I'm, I'm really thankful for the conversation and uh, yeah for the friendship as well so thank you thank you Maurice I really enjoyed this conversation and I always enjoy talking to you it's sama sama, we say in Indonesia. So same. It's the same from here. <laughs> Thanks a lot.
you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.